I guess we'd better have one. Think we ought to make one try, Jose, or not? <clears throat> I, I think in a way not, maybe partly. Uh, I could rush through these last few chapters, but the more I thought about it, I think that perhaps a bit of a summary of some things and a discussion of where we are at the moment might be as helpful as anything I could do to help us understanding and our understanding and our preparation for what lies just ahead of us. So I want to start, yes, with Hosea again from this standpoint, and that is that we recognize and I mentioned the other day that we went through the Minor Prophet series and there's an awful lot of information there and the primary reason for going there was the dual thread of something that we had not seen really before in the church. We'd always looked at these prophecies as just doing, having to do with physical Israel. But I began to realize that there was a powerful message here for the church, and that the message for the church was just as important, if not more so, especially for us, than that to the physical nation, and that certainly it came first in time order of fulfillment. And we have set, since seen that, seen much of what we discussed in that series come to pass. It already was beginning to come to pass in the church. But we're several years downstream now, actually quite a few. I think I began that series in, what, 97? Somewhere right in there. So we've come a long way, and it might be good to take a quick bird's-eye view uh, of this 12 books and see how it has progressed, see what is yet to come, to see what we're on the edge of, and maybe approach it from an angle or two that will give us a little more insight and understanding as to what needs to be done and how we need to go about it and where, you know, the how, why, where, when, and who of the matter. So let's start by, again, addressing the idea that Hosea was written certainly to all Israel, but the theme that keeps coming back over and over and the preponderance of information is directed right at Ephraim. Now that is very important to understand in that this is the beginning book of 12 which explain the work of the end time. And that it is addressed primarily to Ephraim. So God is giving the setting of the end time work right here in this first book. I did not realize that the first time we went through this because I didn't know who Ephraim was. I thought it was the United Kingdom. But God establishes the setting in Ephraim. The setting of what? A story of the church and a story of what would befall end time Israel as a nation or as nations. Often when a movie opens, they will pan 
New York City or San Francisco or Los Angeles, whatever the setting of the movie is. I have the cameras out and they'll come in on, sit on New York. That's one of the commonest because they like to do movies in New York. Or they might even, let's say, a Civil War movie or something, they might even put the date on the screen, 1860, in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, or Atlanta, Georgia, or whatever the year and the, the event is, to give you an idea of where it's going. If it's 16th century England and the kings, they'll, they'll give you the setting for the first few minutes, maybe even before the actors come on the scene to begin the story itself. They want to be sure that you grasp how and where this is going to take place. And with what knowledge you might have of that era in time and that area of the world, wherever it may be, you get comfortable with what the story will be about and basically what the parameters of it will be. So that's what God is doing in the book of Hosea. He acts out this thing with Hosea and the harlot and the children he has to show how he feels, where he is going, what he is going to do, and why. So he's setting the table, or setting the stage, for what is going to come in these following books. Now if it's a story about the church, first and foremost, and he starts addressing Ephraim over and over, and through this book, there are some sections that seem to be talking maybe a little more to the nation, but then some that are referring so clearly to the church itself. But the whole context is in the framework of Ephraim. So we have gone there and we've discussed how this is the country of Ephraim from information we found in Genesis 49 and Deuteronomy 33 and other places to show what actually transpired here at the end and therefore what has to be. So if Ephraim is the setting for the primary part of the story, then the church began in Ephraim because it's the setting of the church and of the leadership of Israel in the end time. Now a story, a movie, sometimes will start in New York, but it might go to Los Angeles and back or London and back as a side trip. You know, the main actors may have relatives overseas or something, and they go there and they come back or whatever. So there'll be the main plot, and then there are subplots that work in and out throughout the presentation. And God does the same thing here. He's telling two stories at once, essentially, but he'll emphasize one a little more, and then he'll emphasize the other a little more. And as it progresses chapter by chapter, the plot, the story gets bigger and bigger and fuller and fuller. So that by the time you reach the end of the movie, you come to some kind of a climax, don't you? God does the very same thing in these 12 little books. He tells a story. He starts out with the main focus of his attention. Some so-called prophets out in the world will tell you that America is not even mentioned in prophecy. It's all about little Israel in the Middle East, and it's all about other places, but America is not mentioned. How could you, in any form or fashion, write a book 
about the conditions in the world today, in the geopolitical setting, what is going on in the world, and not mention America. Either America is very prominent in the end time story, or we're not in the end time. Because you can't talk about the world without talking about us. Whether you're talking military jargon, you're talking economics, or whatever the subject may be, we have to be first and foremost in line. Space programs, who are you going to talk about? Swaziland? No, we are so very prominent right now. So when God opens this story about what will happen in the end time, he opens right here. Gives it quite a discussion. He talks about our divided hearts, what we're doing that's wrong, what we need to do to correct it, and that he is very displeased. Starts that with the story of Hosea and the harlot. We will get on into this at some point. I'm not going to try to go through the rest. Well, I don't know. Oh, I better not even attempt it. I know I'll get sidetracked and I'll never get through it. So let's, let's not try to go through all the verses of this prophecy here at the end. Let's move on a little bit to the book of Joel, the next chapter in line. He says, Hear, you, hear this, you old men... And give ear all you inhabitants of the land. Now he's discussing the church. And when we get down to Haggai, it talks about how there will be old men who are able to see the beginning of God's work in the end time and will be able to see the finale, the finish of it. So he even mentions here at the beginning of the book of Joel, old men, but he includes all the inhabitants of the land because there's a message here. This message goes through and says, tell your children of it and let their children tell their children and their children another generation. In other words, the story that is beginning to unfold here is going to be a story that is very dramatic at the beginning, and yet it is going to produce some results that need to be told to the children generation after generation. We'll find that this story is going to wind up with the return of Christ and the beginning of the millennium and then subsequently then the great white throne judgment. So we're beginning a period of judgment on the earth here and how God is going to take a, a, a hand in the affairs of men and turn everything around and begin to work salvation in an earnest way on the earth. Satan will be bound. He will not any longer be able to influence for a thousand years and will only be released for a short time at the end of that thousand years and then will be bound again forevermore. In Hebrews it talks about how everything was put under Christ's feet or under his hand, under his rule. And then he makes the statement, yet not everything as yet or something to that effect. He is qualified to take over the rule of everything on earth and everything in the universe. But the time has not quite come that you're going to see the total fulfillment of that. He's working in and among a few people right now, but he is not working with everyone yet. 
But we are right on the precipice, about to go over, when he begins to do the dramatic things that are going to end Satan's reign on this earth and usher in his reign. So Joel introduces that. He sets, puts the setting here in America, that we will be the pivotal com- country with the beginning of the end of the prophecies of the end time. We are pivotal in terms of the church, and we are pivotal in terms of the tribes of Israel, and where God begins the end time work. God does not deal with minor issues when he starts his major work. He is not going to deal with Cambodia or the Congo or Liechtenstein. He's going to start dealing with us first. Now why? He holds us most accountable. Of all people on the earth, the United States is the most accountable nation to God for leading the world into Satanism. Now, for some countries, it wasn't a very big leap into that because they'd basically always been there. But for those who had God's Word and have preserved it through the hundreds of years recently and have pointed to themselves as Christian and indeed are Israel, the ones that God chose to be examples to the rest of the world, God will hold us most accountable. And if we're the firstborn son, he holds us doubly accountable. God promised Israel greater blessing than he did any other nation when he talked to Abraham then passed it on to Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. Gave them bigger promises of which the rest of the world might have been jealous. And we have been happy, I won't say thankful necessarily, but at least happy with the blessings that have come by living in this land. The most blessed land on earth. But we've taken it for granted, and we've forgotten that God is going to bring a much sterner, harsher judgment on those that he set as an example for the rest of the world. How could he not judge us more harshly? Let's say a parent needs to go away and tells the oldest child in the family, I'm going to be gone now for six hours, And I would like you to take charge here and make sure everything stays as I would have it, that the conduct is good and that the house isn't a total wreck when I get back. Your responsibility to set an example for the other kids and to make sure things are done decently and in order. Now when that parent comes home six hours later and the house is upside down, so to speak, Is he going to hold the youngest child responsible? No, he's going to hold the one he left in charge responsible. And God is the same way. With great blessing, with great honor, with being selected as an example for the rest of the world, comes great responsibility. And it is a responsibility we've abdicated. 
we have let ourselves go down to the level of the Gentiles and even worse. Did not Paul say that even some Gentiles without God and without God's word had better moral understanding in what can make a culture work by law than Israel? Just by nature. You can't allow lying and stealing and cheating and murder and expect a culture to work right. So they have rules that didn't even necessarily come from God that they figured out themselves. We were given the holy, just, wonderful law of God and then didn't follow it. And even our religions have said it doesn't even count. It's done away. Not important. So therefore, we can do anything we want and whatever feels good and everything will be all right. That's a lie, because God is holding us accountable. And the chickens are just about to come home to roost. Now this book of Joel talks about the terrible devastation that is coming. And it will come first to us, essentially. I won't go through all of it about the palmer worm and the canker worm and all the things that he says about uh, that will waste our fields and our forests and we will become poor. And through this, he has several warnings about sanctifying a fast, calling a solemn assembly, and showing how the meat is cut off from our house, the seed is rotten, and everything is it's just going down the rat hole. No good. Chapter 2, he says, Blow the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Now that's interesting, because we've already seen the setting in Hosea is of Ephraim. So when Joel starts talking about these things, the setting hasn't changed. That's where God began the book. And the second chapter continues there. He doesn't address anyone in particular here at the beginning of the book of Joel. He says these are just the words that came. So there's not been an antecedent change. Still talking to the same people. He will address Israel and Jacob here and there through this short book. But he says, blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. So, that being the case, Zion must be in Ephraim, must it not? And Ephraim is the United States. So the real Zion that the trumpet must be blown in is here. Now, you could look at this one of two or three different ways, I suppose. Zion is the church. Hebrews 12, 22 and 23. Therefore, it could say, blow the trumpet in the church. Well, where is the church? Its headquarters was here. Most of its population and the greatest amount of its congregations were here. This is where the organization began. God began a work here through Herbert Armstrong. Now we need to grasp that America then is the setting where God set his hand to work. That should be obvious to everyone. 
who is a part of the church. Now, what about you? Some of you have been in the church 30, 40, 50 years. Were you involved in the work? Did you do a work? What work was it you did? Herbert Armstrong said he would do the work. My work, he said many times. Now, we cynically boiled it down to three things that were our responsibility to pray, to pay, and to stay. You've heard those before. But did you really feel you were truly involved in your day-to-day life in the work? Or did you just go to work, earn your money, pay your tithes, go to Sabbath services, go home and start working again, and somebody else in Pasadena or Brickett Wood or Big Sandy or somewhere else was doing the work? Even in a local congregation, the minister, the elders, would go out and visit new people, would invite them, would baptize them. They were doing the work in your city, maybe. But were you truly a part of that? Were we all called to do the work? Or why were we called? Mr. Armstrong would try to explain it and say, you weren't called here just to save your hide from the end time. You're here to do the work. And by that, he meant support me while I do the work, didn't he? Did he buy any of you a jet airplane to go do the work? No. Now, I'm not trying to make us feel alienated. I'm just trying to make a point that we weren't that greatly involved as individuals in doing God's work. That's part of the reason is we didn't understand what the work was. We thought we were supposed to preach the gospel around the world as a witness, and then the end would come. That was not the work that was done. Matthew twenty-four fourteen. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen and 20 is the work that was done. God had in mind to do an end-time work. What he needed was people to do that work. The function of Herbert W. Armstrong was to call those people of all nations around the world and prepare them so that when the time for the work to be done, there would be a people prepared to do it. His was not the end time work. His job was to call many people so that God might choose from them a people to do a work that was to come. It is almost time for that work to begin. Herbert Armstrong was not called to do the end-time work of God, to put it a different way. His job was to call a lot of people. That he accomplished. 
He got it done. Then he died. And the church went into apostasy. And God was trying to see who would endure, who would stick to the truth, who was truly converted, and who had grown among thorns, who had been thrown among stones, who had been on fertile ground. He waited, in other words, for the crop to grow, for the seeds to germinate, the crop to come up, and then see what he had. And he said it would be like that, didn't he? Now we saw some eaten by thorns. We saw some on stony ground that just sprouted and the sun hit them and they died because they weren't in soil. Now some have been growing, staying, but some of them were wheat and some were tares. And wheat and tares look a lot alike, just as green stems coming up, and if you start trying to pull the tares out, you'll get some of the wheat. So you have to let them grow together until they head out, and then you can see which ones produce grain or fruit and those which were tares. So we have been, in a period of time since Herbert Armstrong's death, of him sorting out as the crop grew or died or whatever happened to it, to see what would be left, Many were called, now few will be chosen. Once that choosing is complete, he will begin doing his end-time work. We'll see that here in a few minutes. I think that judgment is very close to being accomplished. He has a pretty good idea today those who is, whom he is going to stir to come to build his temple, as Haggai lays out. We've gone far enough past the calling that, we've been, that he's been able to determine of those who were called which could be chosen. Here's where it starts to get a little sticky and scary. Because I want to be one of the chosen ones to go on and finish, or start, really, the end-time work. Everything to this point has only been preparatory. Now, there is the mistake in understanding that most still have. They thought Herbert Armstrong was the end-time Elijah, and he was not. He did not preach the gospel and then the er world end. been 22 or more years now since he quit preaching. But people did not understand, and I didn't at one time. So they went on trying to finish the work, and they didn't even know what the end-time work was. Herbert Armstrong's work was merely to call. So we have all these groups out there. Now, some of them don't have the size or the money to do it, but if they did, they probably would do the same thing the others are doing. We have a few who are big enough to publish booklets, buy TV or radio time, and try to continue what Herbert Armstrong did. 
And we have discussed before the futility of what they're doing. Because very, very few are responding to the call they're putting out. Now the message that they're putting out is basically pablum. Is it not? They don't know really what's going on in the world, and most of them are afraid to really come out and preach prophecy. Because they don't know what they don't know. So they sort of soft pedal it and get on in their congregation sort of with Christian living and make lots of announcements about how many booklets they've printed and what stations they're on. But listen to their broadcasts. They're appallingly sickening and weak. And nothing much is being said. They're certainly not thundering to this country and to the world God's warnings of the end time. The thundering stopped a long time ago. They're trying to be gentle and loving and call more people. Now that's their view. Almost without exception. But what are the fruits of that? Very, very few are responding. I remember the 60s and 70s but we would get several letters a week, no matter, where, wherever you were pastoring a church, you got letters. You had visits to make because people wanted to know. They were waking up. They were hearing the call and they were responding. If you are a pastor now in United or Living or Philadelphia or any of those, Fred Coulter, Dave Pack, any of those who might be big enough to have a broadcast of some kind, you might wait weeks and weeks. You might wait months to get a letter. Somebody responding to their broadcast. And even the ones who do respond quickly die on the vine. They might even come, in a few cases, to church for a week or two or three or five, and then they kind of drop out because they're not finding anything there of substance that answers the deep spiritual needs within them. So it's essentially a work in futility because it is a work God is not in. Now when God was in it, people were being called by the tens of thousands. And when God quit doing that at the death of Herbert Armstrong, that calling stopped. With the very few exceptions, those called at the 11th hour. So whatever they're doing, and how many ever millions of dollars they finally spend, it won't matter. If one of the world's wealthiest people decided to give them $40 billion cash, and they spent it all on broadcasting around the world, they would get about the same response they are today with far less money in broadcasting because God isn't in it. Remember when Elijah had fasted and it hadn't rained for three years, and he told his servant, go over and look. There was a cloud, but God wasn't in it. Look again, there's a cloud. God isn't in it. He went and looked again, and there was a wee small cloud. God was in it. And then it began to rain. Now, they're looking for a cloud and a raining down of blessing, and it's not coming. 
Now, those are just the facts. That's not my bias. That's not my anger. It's not throwing rocks at people for what they're doing necessarily. It's just a statement of fact of what's going on and how much fruit is being produced of it. God planted the seed with Herbert Armstrong in the minds of many. And now he has sat back and waited to see what would be produced at harvest time. That's what's been going on. That should be obvious. But if you're not reading the scriptures and finding out what God says, it isn't so obvious. So, the real work is yet to be done. We'll see that as we go on through this story. Hasn't been done yet. He did a work, but the work is still ahead. The work of the living God is just about to start. So he sets the stage in, in uh, the book of Hosea, essentially with Ephraim as the leader of Israel, and addresses the church a few times there as well, and the underlying story there is of the church in Ephraim. So when he gets into Joel, he talks about the terrible things that are going on. Yes, we have a spiritual famine going on, and we're just now starting to enter that time when a physical famine is starting in the land, when there will not be energy, and there will not be crops produced, and people will begin to starve to death physically, just as we in the church have been starving to death spiritually. So he says, blow the trumpets in Zion. Well, if you're going to do that, you better find out where Zion is. Well, A, Zion is the church. So the trumpet needs to be blown in the church. But I think we're going to see that God's work includes some physical things as well before we're done today. So the trumpet needs to be blown from the literal, physical location of Zion. That needs to be pinpointed. Just where is that? Because some of the things that have to be done in the end time work require that we find the right location on the earth to do it. And he has established the story here that his work of the end time and his major focus will be on Ephraim. It is the key nation in end-time prophecy. Not one that is not mentioned, as some would have you believe, but the key nation. And he says that the alarm is to be that the day of the Lord comes, for it is near at hand. All these terrible things. We are seeing the storm clouds gather. The day of the Lord is a day of darkness and gloominess, great trial, trouble, and tribulation. And we, as we look at the world today, see the storm clouds gathering, and the trouble is on the horizon. Big trouble. It is a worldwide problem we're looking at today, but it's centered in the United States. When our stock market goes down, the rest of the world trembles, and then theirs follows suit, because so much of the world's economy is based here, between here and London, and what they call the city over there, or the key areas. 
But don't forget that even their bankers are centered in Assyria with the Rothschilds, who actually own those central banks. So a terrible time is coming, and he tells us in chapter 2, verse 12, Therefore also now says the Eternal, Turn you even the knee with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments, and turn to the Eternal your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and relents him of the evil. So even when he's crying out a severe warning, he says there is a chance to turn our heart and actually be blessed because it is a kind God there. I might go back to Hosea 11 for just a moment and read down from where we stopped before. Chapter 11 of Hosea. Uh, I got down to verse 6 where we got sidetracked. The sword shall abide on his cities and shall consume his branches and devour them because of their own counsels. Now this is a prophecy. Then Joel begins to set the scene for these horrible things to actually come to pass and what we should be doing in the meantime. He says, and my people are bent to backsliding from me. They're headed the other direction from God. Though they call them to the Most High, none at all would exalt him. Even in the church, through Herbert Armstrong, God called them to the Most High. That was his message, to turn us to God, to begin to obey God. And yet, we didn't exalt God in the way that he wanted exalted. And we took it for granted. And we were half asleep. And we weren't getting it. And this says so. We wouldn't put God as high as he is. We didn't worship him with our whole heart. And he can't stand that kind of a relationship. He wants it wholehearted. How shall I give you up, Ephraim? How can I give you up? How can I throw you out? How shall I deliver you, Israel? I, I, I can't throw you away, but you're so lousy I can't deliver you either. That puts you betwixt and between, doesn't it? Have you ever had mixed emotions about someone? Maybe one of your children. I'd like to give you a bicycle, but right now I'd like to knock you over the head. Now, not that you'd knock them over the head, but I, I'm just talking about emotion here. I could choke you. Well, that's the way God is with us. He, he says, I chose you. I made you the firstborn. I made you the leader of the nations. I started my church there. I called you to the Most High with a blanketing of radio and television all over the land, and you wouldn't listen. You were doing your own thing. And even you who did listen didn't put me where I wanted to be or where you should have put me. So I chose you. Now I don't know what to do. How am I going to save you? When you've gone that far after Baal and the culture of Satan, he said, I have a difficult problem here. How shall I make you as Adma? How shall I set you as Zeboim? 
Those were two cities of the plain of Sodom and Gomorrah. Two of the cities that were obliterated with Sodom and Gomorrah. So he says, how can I do that to you? I chose you. I made you my firstborn. I can't just wipe you completely out, can I? I will not... Wait, wait a minute. Uh, my heart is turned within me. My repentings are kindled together. My heart is turned in me. I, it's not set straight. It's, it's being pulled so many different directions. Remember the one we used to do with the clover stems? He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. She loves me, she loves me not. That's the way I did it. The heart was confused. Didn't know whether that was the one and only or not at age 12. You know? But romance can be so frustrating and so confusing because we have so many different emotions that can go so many ways in the dating and selection process for a mate. We're up and we're down, and we're in and up and all around. And that's the way God says he is feeling. This is now. Verse 9, he makes a statement. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not do you as I did the plains of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, he's going to turn his anger loose, but he says, I'm not going to do the fierceness of my anger. I will not return to destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man. He says, if I were a man, Ephraim, I would just wipe you out. I couldn't take it. I would create genocide. He's speaking of our nation here. He's speaking of the church, the firstborn of God. Now he did decide to spew us violently out of his mouth, his spittle on the ground, and then see what would come out of that, what would survive it. Another analogy of the sowing of the seed. Spit it out on the ground and see what <coughs> survives. But I am God and not man, the Holy One in the midst of you, and I will not enter into the city. They shall walk after the Eternal. He shall roar like a lion. When he shall roar, then the children shall tremble from the west. I think there is another indication there about the location of the people who will fear and tremble before God. They'll be in the western part of Ephraim. It won't be in the east, it won't be in the north, it won't be in the south, they'll be in the west. That ties in with one back in Amos. Let's see, where is it, chapter 8? It's talking about a famine in the land, and they shall wander from sea to sea, from the north, even to the east. <laughs> they shall run to and fro, and seek the word of the eternal, and shall not find it. They won't look in the right place. They'll go from coast to coast. They'll go to the east. They'll go to the north. They won't go to the southwest. The north 
in the east, north and south part of the east, the whole east. So the northern tier and the whole eastern tier, but they won't go to the southwest where God is doing his work. That's where Zion is. That's where he did his work with Herbert Armstrong. Now, the difference being that Herbert Armstrong was to do a calling, and he needed to do a lot of broadcasting. He needed to reach the cities, the populace of the earth. So God put him in a merchant city, it says in Ezekiel 17. And he did his work from there because he had to get on TV and radio and reach the whole population of the country and to a lesser degree the world. But mainly here and in Canada is where the message went out. The great majority of the dollars were spent here. Spent quite a bit in other lands, but not anywhere near like he did here. Because this is where he wanted the work built. Now contrast that. When we understand what the work of the end time is, and we'll get into it more specifically a little later here. With Herbert Armstrong, it was a work that was to go out to all the nations in a visible and audible way and call them to repentance, call them to God. Now that is not going to be the case in the end time. In the end time, God is going to call a small people together in a place he has chosen, and there he will do a work by example for the rest of the world to see. He will send out two men from that gathering to tell about it, to preach about it, to show what God is doing in a small area of the work of the world in Ephraim, in Zion, in Jerusalem. And he is going to stir a small amount of people, a few thousand, to come there and to be a part of that. It will not be something that is broadcast as a calling around the world. What warning is given to the world will be done in the word, words of the mouth of two men. And wherever they travel around the world, they will give a warning. And if it is not immediately heeded, they will bring plagues upon that area. I suspect they will travel to every place on earth because it has to be a witness against the whole world. It's going to be a very, very busy time. But it's not going out the same way that it went under Herbert Armstrong. Totally different work. It's a point back to what God is doing there. Might I say, here, in this area. Because we are in the southwest of Ephraim. No, they're looking in the wrong places and they can't find it. The message is not in the north and is not anywhere in the east, northeast or southeast. It's in the west, the Bible says. People say, well, they're saying out there in Arizona that we need to get out of the city and move out in the wilderness, out into the field, as God will deliver you there. Some people say, well, I'm already living in the country. I've heard this. Well, I'm already living in the country. I'm not in the city, so that doesn't matter to me. 
they have a very narrow, limited view of God's end-time work is the problem. They are thinking of themselves. Well, I'm already in the country. I'll probably be safe here. So their thought is for their own safety. And what they're not grasping is that God is not bringing us out of the cities and from around the world just to save us. We're not worth that much. For you? Yeah, you. More important than some member sitting in United or Philadelphia or living or anywhere else? No. Are you a lot more beautiful? Are you a lot taller? Is your IQ a lot higher? Do you speak better English? Why is any one of us here any more important than any member of the church anywhere? Why would... Why do you deserve to be saved from this holocaust to come any more than anyone else? We already know from Scripture that 90% of the church will go into the tribulation. Many of them will be saved there in repentance, but they probably will have to lose their lives there. And only a small remnant will be taken out and saved. The one taken out and saved was... Was he a whole lot better than the one that had to repent in it? I don't think any of us are any better. We could go visit another group. We could walk in on their Sabbath service and look around. I don't think we would be immediately judged by anybody around as being vastly superior to whoever else was already in the room. Do you? In fact, they might say, where'd that hit come from? might be a judged less valuable than someone somewhere else. So what's the difference between those whom God will preserve out of it and those who will go into it? The answer is, the ones he will choose are the ones who will humble themselves, put their own personal needs and cares aside, grasp what the work is that he has to do and be willing to leave lands, wives, husbands, grandmothers, grandfathers, children, anything and everything, travel in some cases around the world to come help do what God is doing. That's the kind he's looking for. He's not looking for anybody who will put their own people, their own wealth, their own desires ahead of his work. He is about to start doing a magnificent work. And he wants people to do it who are committed and dedicated to him and to his ways. That's what he's looking for. So we really need to understand the difference, don't we? We need to understand, if we're going to be a part of what God is doing, and we're going to help do what he's doing, 
we need to grasp what it is that he is doing. And 90% of the church and more at this point, far more than 90%, do not grasp what God's end time work is. They don't even understand who the 144,000 are. They don't understand there are only going to be 144,000 in the first resurrection. So they're out there trying to get the innumerable multitude called and converted so they can be part of it. They don't understand. They haven't studied the scripture carefully. People, children will tremble from the west. They shall tremble as a bird out of Egypt and as a dove out of the land of Assyria. And I will place them in their houses, says the Eternal. Some will tremble. They'll be delivered. Others are going to trouble, captivity, and it will be a long time before they're placed in their houses. Ephraim compasses me about with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. We tell him we love you, Lord but our works are far from him. We give him lip service, but don't obey his commands. We fudge. We accept sin within our lives. We say we are apart from the world, and yet we cling to it. But Judah yet rules with God and is faithful with the saints. Makes me wonder there if he's not referring here to the spiritual Jews, because physical Judah... Is far from him. And physical Ephraim is far from him. So it may be he's referring to Ephraim and Israel here as a physical nation, but the spiritual Jews within it are still faithful to God. That's a possibility of what he's saying there. Anyway, let's leave it at that in Hosea for the moment and go on where we were. Even in the horrible things that are listed in the book of Joel, he says that if we will turn to him and blow the trumpet in Zion, again he says it in chapter 2, verse 15, and gather the people and cry out, turn with our hearts, uh, that he will bless us, even in the trouble that is coming. He says he'll bless us in the first month. He says that afterward, verse 28, uh, that he will pour out his spirit on all of us. And the young men and the maidens and the old men and so on will dream dreams and the young men will see visions and there will be wonders in the heavens and in the earth before the great coming day of the Lord. Peter thought that that was happening in the book of Acts when the church first began as a New Testament church. The new covenant was introduced with fire. The Old Covenant was introduced with fire, was it not, from Sinai? And he introduced the New Covenant with a different type of fire, cloven tongues of fire coming down from the ceiling and lighting on the people. Made a very visible manifestation of his power, his heat, his fire. Peter looked around, probably scared him half silly, and then he said, this is the days of Joel! He thought the day of the Lord was coming. He's afraid he's going to see his Lord any minute with, with fire floating around the room like, like, like uh, lightning. But it wasn't the case. It might have been a minor fulfillment, but it wasn't the end time day of the Lord. 
wasn't the final fulfillment. But God says right here at the end, we're going to see that. So even with all of this horrible day of the Lord coming in which most people on the face of the earth will die, God is going to be working through a small part, small group of people that he will pour his spirit out upon. They'll have visions and dreams and do great signs and wonders. Now there's where I want to be. I want to be with them. I don't want to be turned loose out there in the rest of the day of the Lord and all these things that are coming down. I want to be among those people where Peter was when he saw those manifestations. Let me ask you a question. If that's my desire, and that's where I want to be, right with those people, when Amos 2, verses 27 to 31, are fulfilled. If that's where I want to be, where should I be? Should I be with you? Are you the place I should be? Are we doing what he says? Are we turning to God with our whole hearts? Are we putting him ahead of others, forsaking all others and being faithful to him? Now, if we are, that's the direction we're headed. You're the people I want to be with. Because if you're doing that, I'm going to feel pretty safe being with you. But if you're not it, I want to find somebody that is. Because I want to be there. Now, my gut feeling... is that you people are pretty good candidates for being among those that this happens. Because I see you struggling and working, striving to change, trying to overcome problems and difficulties and do the things that you know God would have you to do, failing at times, not doing as well as you should. I don't either, but I'm working that way, and I think you are. So if you're not it, I don't know where to look. I've been on different continents, talked with people in the church here and there. I'm going to cast my lot with you. Don't let me down. I'll try not to let you down. Let's work together to get this thing done. Because somewhere... On this earth and in this nation, we can narrow it down. There is a group of people that God is going to work through to do this. And he is going to call people from north, south, east, and west, from around the world, to come and do his work at the end. I've gone to a lot of websites and people say, well, so-and-so sure is preaching this and -and so-and-so sure preaching that. You ought to go to their website. I go there. And invariably I get disappointed as I find that there are great gapping holes in their understanding. They don't 
get it. They don't understand. I think you people essentially do. Now, I've been pretty hard on us during this feast. But I think God led me to that. I think he led me to start the series on our fathers, to see their faith, to see their obedience, to see their dedication to God, even to see their errors and how they overcame them. And I think he worked it out that we hit this part of Ephraim at the feast time because it is the start of this Minor Prophets series of books, chapter by chapter, which go on to, by the end of Zechariah and Malachi, explain, in a nutshell, what God's work is. And that a people has to be prepared in this nation, in this area of the nation, if you will, to do his work. Now, we're not great. We're not perfectly obedient. But I think he's called us out here and given us the amount of knowledge we have to give us a chance to help get this thing off the ground. If we don't measure up, he can get somebody else. But the very fact that he's given us the knowledge and understanding of what his work is compels us to be part of it and accomplish it because to whom much is given, much is required. And he's given us much understanding. And he doesn't cast his bread on the waters in vain, brethren. If he gave you this understanding, he expects you to act on it. And your eternal judgment could be in the balance as to how you respond. What will you put before God and his work? A husband? A wife? A child? A house? A farm? A bank account? A job? You see, in Worldwide, we were only called to pray and pay and stay where we were. To do his work under Herbert Armstrong, to do our part in it, we could stay in Chicago or Miami or London or wherever we were and send our money in and pray for the broadcast and the broadcasters. We didn't have to give up a lot of things dear to us, Christmas and Easter and pig and, you know, lipstick and stuff like that, but not our families not our homes, not our jobs. You've been called to do a much greater work than you were called to do under Herbert Armstrong. You are called to a much greater responsibility. You are called to a much sterner judgment. Because if he gave you ten talents or five talents, he expects you to do something with it and even if he only gave you one, he doesn't expect you to just bury it and sit on it. He expects you to get up and do something with it. 
action, response, commitment. The work is going to be done in the southwestern United States by someone. It's not going to be done in Pasadena. It's not going to be done in Oregon. It's not going to be done in New York or London or Paris. It's going to be done in the wilderness, the mountains, and the deserts of the southwest. That is very clear. And it will be done in Zion. Therefore, Zion must be in the southwest deserts of the United States. Some might argue with me. Well, we'll see. Won't we? Can you name a better place? Can you name another place that you think God might be? Some would say Jerusalem over in the Middle East. I'm sorry, it just doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the Scriptures. It's a deception. It's a fake. won't work. He began his work here. He's going to finish it here. So, he says, even with all this destruction that's coming, I'm going to save out some people. I'm going to work through them. I'll give them dreams and visions, and I'll give them uh, signs and wonders and so on. Then the book of Amos, chapter 1, verse 2, he said, The Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. Well, we already know from the beginning chapter that he's working out of Ephraim. We've defined that as the United States. So if he is going to do his work and he is going to roar from Zion, then it must be within the setting of the movie. They can't suddenly skip somewhere else when everything is being set up here. It has been from 1940, or no, I started to say 47, from 1927 on, when he began to work with one man, Herbert Armstrong, and did most of the calling here, and the falling apart here, and the growing of the crop and the wheat and the tares together here. And he's talking about this nation falling first. And the habitations of the shepherds shall mourn, and the top of Carmel shall wither. Then he talks about punishments he's going to bring on various peoples. He goes through, talks about Israel and our own land, and the woes that are coming, how we haven't sought our God, and how we better prepare to meet our God, O Israel, in chapter 4, verse 12. Chapter 6, verse 1, Woe to them that are at ease in Zion, and trust in the mountain of Samaria, which are named chief of the nations, to whom the house of Israel came. Who is the chief of the nations? Who is the first fruits of the nations? Who has the double blessing, the double fruit? But boy, don't be at ease in Zion. That's scary. Verse 3, you put far away the evil day and cause the seed of violence to come near. Some are saying, well, it's still a good ways off. We have time. Obviously, the work that we think we're doing isn't getting done, so there must be a bunch of time because nothing's happening. In some, re some ways, they recognize their own futility and then start putting it off. No, it's upon us, brethren. This has got to happen before the church dies off physically. God says it will 
come to a conclusion before this generation dies. He is working with this generation. And as I look out, I see more gray than I do any other color. Somebody asked yesterday if we had our cemetery all legally set up. Wanted to make reservations. Didn't give me a day, but... Well, we are getting older. The whole church is getting older. The obituary column gets longer and longer, day by day, week by week, and month by month. God says there are going to be some cranky old men around who saw worldwide at its greatest and will see the latter temple at its greatest and be able to compare. So this thing's got to happen pretty quick or God's going to have to give us some patty call. Most of you don't remember what that is. It was kind of an alcohol solution that's supposed to make old people feel, feel better in dry counties where they couldn't buy booze. Bottom line. Cut through the manure. I didn't know why my granddaddy liked his hattie call. Now I do. Chapter 9, I saw the eternal standing on the altar. And he said, smite it. Then he says that he's going to make the whole thing turn out right by the time you get to the end of the book of, of uh, Amos. Then in Obadiah... He says that the destruction of this country and of Israel is going to come at the hands of Esau. Now, the Assyrian is the rod of his anger, and probably the military might will be centered there, but the economic destruction is in the hands of the Edomites. Esau, the, say they are Jews who are not Edomites, who are in control of the banking system in Western Europe and the United States. They will laugh at our calamity. Those people who are scurrying about, trying to act like they're trying to save the system right now, while they are plotting its demise, are going to laugh at our calamity when we fall. Esau has always hated Jacob, ever since Jacob grabbed his heel. Now, it is interesting to me that I can go to different places, several I know of now, right here in this area, within 50 miles of where we are today, and I can find petroglyphs written in the rock of a man standing with a bow and arrow and a hand under him grabbing his heel. I can go up to Parowan, and I find a caricature there, written in stone of a hand reaching out and grabbing another man's heel. I dare say that you could put all the Navajos, Apaches, Sioux, Cheyennes, Iroquois, and Cherokees, and all of them together, and tell them, I want you to write on these rocks and scratch in here a story, and you can just write anything you want, and I bet if we lined up a million of them, none of them, would have it come into his mind that I think that I will draw a picture of a man here with a bow and arrow and a great big hand hanging on to his foot. How many would think to do that? Now, you used to sit in class and draw pictures when you're supposed to be doing math, didn't you? 
How many of you ever drew a picture of a man with another man grabbing his foot? I never did. I drew trucks. I drew pictures of the girl over there. You know? Doodled. But it just never occurred to me to draw a man and somebody hanging onto his foot. It just, you know, I, I don't know why. Well, I guess I do know why, too. I wasn't tuned into the story of Esau and Jacob. <coughs> Whoever did these petroglyphs had in his mind a story of someone who grabbed somebody else's heel and that it was an important event. So who did it? Who wrote it? Some sun-worshipping, bear-worshipping Indian? I don't think so. I doubt it. So Esau didn't like his foot grabbed. And he didn't like the blessings going to Jacob. And God said in Genesis 49, I think it is, that in the end time he would prevail and break the yoke of Jacob off his neck. And Obadiah says that he'll laugh at our calamity and that he will be destroyed as a result of Then we go to the book of Jonah, which is a story about a man who was commissioned to do a job from God and refused it and got on a boat, got tossed out and swallowed up by a great fish prepared to swallow him and rolled around in digestive juices for three days and had his skin all bleached out where it was as white as a white t-shirt and then got spit out on the beach and said, I'll go wherever you say, Lord. And went and delivered a message to Nineveh. So I think somewhere in the story, we're going to have somebody commissioned to do something that they refuse to do. But I think they'll wind up doing it. Then we have the book of Micah coming up. Man, I'm almost done, aren't I? The book of Micah coming up, which addresses the church a lot specifically, talks about the last days in chapter 4. That's where it talks about where our leader was cut off, Herbert Armstrong, and how we wandered, didn't know what to do. But one of the daughters of Zion is going to be given the, the kingdom and given the first dominion. And that we're to travail, to go through the pain of producing Christ in our lives and producing the man-child that Isaiah 7 and 8 talks about, Emmanuel. And that God will deliver us when we leave the city and go dwell in the wilderness, even to Babylon. Don't leave the country. Stay in the country you're in, but go into the wilderness. There I will deliver you. Then he tells us to rise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. He is going to make us a strong, powerful force against Satan and his government here at the end. He goes on through and shows how he will deliver his people out of all this trouble. Then he has the book of Nahum, which is essentially a prophecy against Assyria, because Assyria will be used probably to lead the consortium of nations that come against America and destroy it. But he tells them in this 
chapter, or in this book, that even though he used them as a tool to do that, that was his people Israel they were destroying. So he's going to punish them for doing it. But even in the midst of this, where he's talking about the destruction of those who destroy America, chapter 1, verse 15, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that brings good tidings, that publishes peace. Same message that is told or is said to be preached there in Isaiah 40 when it begins the move forward of a voice crying in the wilderness and culminates with Cyrus helping the church, providing the things that are needed to build the temple and so on. Uses the same verse, same wording. O Judah, keep your solemn feast, perform your vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through you, he is utterly cut off. Keep your solemn feasts. If we'd finished Hosea today, we would have found that he mentioned the Feast of Tabernacles again and dwelling in booths. And it spurred the thought again in my mind that maybe this is the message God wanted brought out at the Feast of Tabernacles. It mentions the feast at least three times in the book of Hosea. So even as God begins to punish and causes his people to stand up like a threshing instrument, we will be used to bring the message of God and thresh the Assyrian. It'll be God's witnesses against Satan's witnesses. The book of Habakkuk says, how long is this going on? God sees the works that are going on. Habakkuk got frustrated when God said what he was going to do to the people and to the nation. And he finally concluded, I'm just going to sit on my watch and wait for God to do his thing. I'm not going to be impatient or frustrated. And it'll happen. And even though everything's coming down around me, he says, verse the last verse, the Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hinds feet, and he will make me to walk upon my high places. So he says, I know there is deliverance, even though sometimes it gets frustrating. It seems like it's going on forever, and God's people are not being blessed. He gets frustrated, even shows his annoyance to God. And then he realizes, I better shut my big fat mouth and wait and see what God's going to do and wait for him to do it. And once he adopted that attitude, then he says, okay, now I'm just going to wait. I'm going to be patient, see what God does. Now, you and I have been going through some of those emotions over the last two, three, four, five years, have we not? Just like Habakkuk. How long, O oh Lord? When are you going to bring this about? When are you going to bless us? When are you going to do all the things we've been talking about and rattling about for the last 12, 13 years? How long is this going on? We're a lot like Habakkuk. But now things have changed just a little bit here lately, haven't they? Now we're beginning to see the whole world economic system coming apart. We're beginning to see that this nation will never be the same again. We are beginning to enter that time that we have wondered about. So after Habakkuk dealt with his frustrations and decided, all right, I'm going to patiently wait for God, then we come to the book of Zephaniah, and God says he's made a decree of financial destruction. And how they'll throw the gold and the silver in the streets. And he's talking about this nation. He's talking about Israel. Maktesh, in the story in Zephaniah 1, is the marketplace of Jerusalem. 
Where is the market or marketplace of Israel and Jerusalem? Where is the marketplace of America today? New York and London. Where are you seeing the destruction beginning to happen? The egg is cracking. Pretty soon it's going to fall and break. Humpty Dumpty won't be able to be put back together again. It's all over. Done. So we're in process in Zephaniah. He starts the prophecy by saying he's going to utterly consume things from off the land. He says we'll be kicked out of our houses down here in about verse uh, 13 and throw the gold and silver in the street. Brethren, we are seeing this prophecy come to pass this very day. It's no, matter, no longer a matter of waiting for God to do his thing. He started it. And a lot of your frustrations are beginning to vaporize those how long, oh Lord, feelings we had are beginning to diminish as we begin to see, hey, this thing's actually going to happen now. So we fasten our seatbelts and say, whoa, it's coming down, this is scary. No more frustrated about nothing's happening, now it's the roller coaster started. Suck in your breath, hang on. Don't puke. It's going to get wild. And he says, gather yourselves together before this decree of financial destruction happens. Chapter 2, first few verses. We're warned. It's coming. Gather yourselves. Be humble. Be meek. Seek the eternal, all you meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment. Seek righteousness. Seek meekness. It may be you shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. He's telling us, get your attitude straight now. Get out of this world now. It's coming apart. Do something. Now, I've preached Zephaniah 1 for years about how a financial crash was coming. <clears throat> Gather yourselves. Not many listened. Now we're in the middle of it. When are we going to listen? Are we going to be caught in it? We're entering scary times. We're entering times in which most people are going to die. He says out of all this mess, he's going to save a few people. Down in verse... Uh, Oh, 11 of chapter 3. Mentions the Assyrian again, but he says, The pride, I will take away out of the midst of you them that rejoice in your pride, and that you shall no more be haughty because of my holy mountain. No spiritual pride is going to come down. There are a lot of churches right now who are proud of their spiritual standing as Philadelphians or whatever they think they are. It's going to come down. I will also leave in the midst of you a meek and humble people, and, you shall, they, shall, and they shall trust in the name of the Eternal. It says in verse 14 then, Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Fear not, verse 16, let not your hands be slack, 
Fear not, work, be of strong, be of good courage, it says in several places. I will save her that is lame and halts, and gather that which was driven out, and will get them praise and fame in every land where they've been put to shame, verse 19. Then we get to the book of Haggai. He says that people say it's not time to build a temple. We've got this economic crash, we've got trouble everywhere. This is no time to build a temple. And God says, yes, I will bring, I will call, I will draw or stir up the spirit of people around the world, and they will come from long distances, it says in Zechariah 6, to come and build the temple. It says, go to the mountain, bring wood, build the temple of God. And he's talking to the people of God, because he addresses Zerubbabel and Joshua, who are the two witnesses of the end time. And the people will be drawn to them, and their job is to build the temple. Herbert Armstrong did not build the temple. He called a lot of people so that some might be chosen out of it to be holy and righteous and come and build the temple. And God knows who they are, whatever congregation they're in, whatever organization they're in. Some are not even in organizations, but they're still seeking God on their own. He knows their hearts. He will draw them. They will come and build the temple of God. So the work of God is dead ahead of us. It's not behind us. It's not currently with us. Now, if we're the prep crew to get things ready so that those lead, that leadership and those people come, then we're already involved in the work of God. But it's going to be done here in this area. can't pray and pay and live in Chicago or New York and do your part of the work. When the Jews left Babylon, they had to go to the location of the temple in order to build it. The same is true today. God will call them from everywhere. <clears throat> I won't go into all the details of this, but when you get through book of Zechariah, it talks about Ephraim again, and I think chapters 9 and 10, about somewhere in there. It talks about how God is going to truly begin to bless his people, and that the work that is started in Haggai and through the book of Zechariah culminates when? Zechariah 14, with the return of Christ to the earth and setting up the millennium. When does the work of God in this time end? When the two witnesses are killed in the streets of the true Jerusalem. and resurrected three and a half days later when Christ returns. That's when the work ends. Then the gospel will have been preached around the world as a witness against the world's system and way. And they will think they have won when they kill those two men. And they will send gifts and party and say, Yes! The only ones standing in the way of world peace are now dead in the streets of Jerusalem. Rejoice, world. Everything's going to be wonderful from now on. And then the heavens will open. And Emmanuel the King will descend out of the heavens. And the graves will open. And the 144,000 will come forth. 
and rise to meet their husband in the air. And they will go back to the throne of God and stand on the sea of glass. And there will be a year's honeymoon while the seven last plagues destroy what's left on this earth. We'll not fight. Get to know our husband. Learn what our duties and responsibilities will be during that year-long honeymoon. And then he will come back. His vesture dipped in blood. And he will subdue the rest of the earth and set up a peaceful kingdom. There's a lot of preparation that has to happen between now and the time he comes. We have to build villages for God's people to come to. And they have to have the heart and the mind to build the temple and to build Jerusalem. And God will make it a garden of Eden. He will make it a garden of God. He will be a covert from the heat so things can grow without the hot desert sun. He will be a wall of defense, a wall of fire. And every man will have their own vine and fig tree. And it will be a millennial atmosphere for the world to see and the witnesses who go out and preach against this world will have a living, shining example set on the heights of Zion of what can happen if you will obey God. And then they will pronounce plagues and water turning to blood to show them what will happen if you don't obey God. And they won't obey God. and be destroyed. But then Christ will come and he'll say, okay, all you who remain, repent, bend your knees and bow them before me, and I will give you what you saw there at Zion. And he'll bring down his resplendent city and his bride, and he and the Father will dwell among men and be their God and we'll have world peace finally. The work of God, which is just beginning, not over, it's just beginning, is going to be a powerful work that will prove that God is God. And then they shall know that I am the Lord. Brethren, you and I know this. We have the opportunity to be a very integral part of it if we will turn to God and humble ourselves and be meek and obedient and serve our God we can do the work of God what an incredible opportunity and blessing but I think God wanted us to come to attention during this feast and to realize what is at stake and to realize what the incredible payoff is if we will do our part. This world is about to die. But you have the opportunity to live. Therefore, choose life. I've really thoroughly enjoyed this feast. I think it has been, in spite of all... <laughs> the severe warning and everything. We have had a wonderful time fellowshipping together and our, our social fellowship has been 
I think, extraordinary. It's been family instead of just a lot of strangers kind of wondering who each other is. I think we've made progress. And I appreciate the effort that has gone into it. I think you must have done some praying during the feast. I think you must have put some time in with God because it couldn't have gone this smoothly and this well if we hadn't. Thank you for all your help and everything you've done from social activities and planning and work and call cleaning and flower arranging and everything that's been done, the offerings that you've given to God from your hearts to show that your heart is there because your heart is where your treasure is. And you've been generous, and I think that shows your heart is headed in the right direction. So let's be encouraged. Hopefully, instead of God turning his nose away at the smell of our feast, maybe we've made some progress. I hope we have, so that maybe he was able to kind of just give it a little sniff to see if it was worth paying attention to. You know, we don't want to pat ourselves on our back and say, well, we did it right, because we still have a long way to go. But I hope that our hearts are where they ought to be and that we're moving in the right direction and that we're beginning to depend on God more and more and that soon we'll see his face turn to us in pleasure and begin to bless us so we can truly do his work and be a part of what he's doing. So thank you, and for those of you who have to travel, be careful, and hope to see you soon. Thanks for being here. Thanks for serving your God.